0: Thank you, Nicola. Please do take your Bibles uh, if you have them. I think we're back on page 694, I think, Uh, Isaiah 9. Do open them up. Uh, If we've not yet met, I'm Niv, part of the staff team here. Glad to see you this morning. We're going to come to these familiar words, seeking the Lord who inspired them by his spirit. So let's pray as we begin. Holy Father, speak to our hearts this morning that into the darkness of our world and of our lives, your light might shine in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Verse two, if you can see it, is a powerful picture, isn't it? The people walking in darkness. That's a really powerful description of hopelessness. And that's because nobody really likes darkness. Sometimes we think we do, You know, what about stargazing, Niv? What about Christmas lights on a December evening? If you think about it, darkness isn't the part of that we're really enjoying. We're taking in light in different forms. Real darkness is a different thing altogether. I have a vivid memory when I was a child of going to some caves in South Africa in Ootswering. And these caves, 20 million years old, I'm told, had all the things you expect from caves. Stalactites. Stalagmites, incredible. But the thing I'll never forget is the moment where the tour guide took us deep, deep down into the cave and told us he was going to switch off the torch and we would experience real, complete darkness. And he did, and the torch went off, and it was like nothing I've ever experienced before. It felt like the world had fallen away from me, like nothing was solid. I remember clinging onto my mother's hand, that bit tighter, just to make sure reality was still there. That's because darkness, total darkness, is a deeply unsettling thing. And that's because of what darkness is, or or rather what it isn't. Because darkness is an absence. It's not something substantial you can add to the picture. You only get it by taking light away. And so, one way to think of the story of the Bible is that it is the story of the God who is light, bringing light to people in the darkness. Paul can even summarize the gospel like that 2 Corinthians 4 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Light in the darkness. No wonder we love this reading in the winter at our carol services. But what's surprising, if we look closely at these familiar words, is what it will look like for God's light to shine. What Isaiah says people in darkness really need. And Steve's mentioned it a couple of times. You'll see it already in verses 6 and verse (laughs) 7. Heard it in the reading. The answer is government. That's what Jesus' birth means for the world, government. That is surprising. Government is something we complain about a lot. It's something that looks more like the problem than the solution. And yet, apparently, that is what people in the darkness really need. Here is the big thing for us to see from Isaiah 9 this morning, the big thing I've got for us. God's light shines when his son rules. God's light shines when his son rules. This government under this sun is good news for a world in the darkness. Now, chapter 8 has seen Isaiah explain what this darkness is. The king of Judah, Ahaz, and the people with him were under threat, under threat from the kingdom of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. But in the middle of their fear, Isaiah came with good news and a message from God. He said, do not fear. Their invasion will be unsuccessful. Ask God for a sign. And King Ahaz said, no. I don't want a sign from God, thank you very much. It's a refusal of God's grace. And that's what this darkness really is. It's the self-imposed, chosen darkness of refusing God, of saying no to him. See, the people of Judah had stopped relying on God in any meaningful way. They were really trusting Assyria, the empire up north, to save them. That's who they relied on. And so God's judgment is that the Assyrians they had been trusting in would turn to invade them. That would be the darkness they'd chosen, which is what makes verse 1 a wonderful surprise. If you look at it there, we read about Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the territories first invaded when the Assyrians came. That's how they were humbled. And yet God is saying that they will be honored, lifted up, He talks about Galilee of the Nations, again called Galilee of the Nations, because foreign armies were always marching through, but he says they will be honoured as well. Light will shine in the very places left dark by human sin. That's a little bit like a Ukrainian today being told that the city of Mariupol close to Russia, strategically valuable to them, invaded, nearly destroyed in the siege, and now occupied. Like being told that the city of Mariupol will one day become an honoured and prosperous Ukrainian city once again. It's an amazing message of hope. And it means, verse 3, despite the people's disobedience, the blessings of God's covenant are still on the table. You read it there. You've enlarged the nation. And increase their joy. They have the joy that you get at harvest time, the joy that you get after a great victory. But here's the most important bit. In the middle of the verse, they rejoice before you. The people are full of joy because they're in the presence of God. So verses 1 to 3 of our reading are taking us from defeat to victory, from famine to feast, from darkness to light. They're painting a picture of uncontained joy. And then verses four to seven, if you like, are explaining that picture, telling us how it will come about. Because each of verses four, five, and six begin with the word for or because. Even verse five, you can't see it in this translation. These verses are explaining how the light will bring joy, how the light will banish darkness, giving us reasons. Verse four, the reason... Because there'll be an end to oppression. God will shatter the rod of their oppressor. Just as he snatched his people out of slavery and exploitation in Egypt, so he will do so again. And the emphasis is clear. God will do this alone. Because, at the start of verse 4, this is just like the day of Midian's defeat. Do you remember, this takes us back to Judges 7 and the great battle led by Gideon. Do you remember what was special about that battle? God said Gideon had too many men. And so he cut the army down from many thousands to just 300. And when it came to fighting, there wasn't much fighting. All Gideon's army did was smash jars and blow trumpets, and that was it. God did the rest. Well, that's the point. God will do all of it. He's going to end oppression. Verse 5, he's going to end war. Do you know if you like a, a nice fire at this time of year, Christmas fire burning in your hearth. If you don't have a fireplace, do you know Netflix will give you one? There's a setting and it'll play a fire for you to look at. Very nice fires. But verse 5 tells us the best fire of all is still to come. It's the bonfire where God will burn everything used for war, right down to the clothes soldiers wear. There's gonna be a, an end to oppression, verse 4, an end to war, verse 5. But those two are just building to the ultimate reason that there will be light in the darkness. Verse 6. What is that ultimate reason? What is the end of oppression and the end of war? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. The light in the darkness we're longing for is guaranteed through the newborn king that God will provide God's light shines when this son rules. Just notice with me, God's response to oppression and injustice in his world isn't to send another oppressor to oppress those who've done the oppressing. God will not overcome bullies by sending a bigger bully. He sends a child. And that's a clue to us that God's ultimate victory will not come through human violence but through an act of humility and vulnerability that can break the cycle of retaliation in our world. He sends a child. And just notice, the good news here is the fact of his birth. All babies have potential, don't they? It's one of the things parents dream of when they look at their children. What could they grow up to do? Amazing. But the excitement here is not what this baby might or might not do because of who this baby is. The excitement is that he's here already. Because of who this baby is, the government is already on his shoulders. And that's why, many centuries later, the Magi from the East will come and ask, where is the the one born king of the Jews? Not born to be king one day, but king already. And they will find him. And when they find King Jesus, they will bow before him and worship and bring their royal gifts. I don't know how you feel about talking about politics at Christmas time. Maybe it's something you want to stay away from. You get all the family together, different generations, different political opinions, and you think, okay, let's just take controversial things like politics off the table. But Isaiah 9 is telling us, no, Christmas is political, to the heart of Christmas, because the government is on his shoulders. And that word government in verses 6 and 7, it means executive authority, the power to get stuff done. And Isaiah is saying, when that power is on these shoulders, there will be light in our darkness. God's light shines when this son rules. And the good news is the child really has been born to us. The son really has been given to us and he is everything Isaiah said he would be. Jesus lives up perfectly to verse six. Uh, Keep reading in that verse with me. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is worthy to be called Wonderful Counselor because he has spirit-given insight into reality. And he makes all decisions with unfailing wisdom. Follow him and you will never be led astray. Jesus is worthy to be called mighty God. Because even though he comes in the weakness of our human nature, like us in every way except without sin, he acts with divine power. Because the baby at the center of Christmas is the mighty God himself making himself a child. Follow him, and you will be upheld by almighty power. Jesus is worthy to be called everlasting father. This might not be something we often think about, but Jesus is the head of a new spiritual family. That's why, if you think about it, in Mark 5, when he meets the the woman bleeding with a hemorrhage, he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, quoting Isaiah, Jesus talks about the church by saying, here I am and the children God has given me. Follow me, follow Jesus, and you'll discover perfect fatherly care, the kind even the best human fathers are just pointing to. Jesus is worthy to be called Prince of Peace, the one who sits on David's throne, the one who can be all that Solomon, whose name means peace, hinted at, but failed to be in the end. Because Jesus promises his disciples that he will give them the the, the peace the world is waiting for and that the world cannot give. And he does it by dying for his enemies so that he can break that cycle of violence and retaliation once and for all. Follow him and you will discover peace within and peace with others that comes from peace with God. In fact, for this king to rule means ever-increasing peace. Have a look at verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, these are familiar words, I'm sure, to many of us. We hear them read at Christmas. We hear them sung at Christmas. Perhaps some handle was playing in your head as Nicola read it. What do we do with them? Well, of course, like everything in this season of Advent, we should allow these words to increase our joy in Jesus' first coming, to increase our longing for his coming again. But this morning, let me offer two specific responses we might have to the newborn king. God's light shines when his son rules. So, first, Put yourself under his rule as you repent. Put yourself under his rule as you repent. Here's a striking thing. Matthew, in his gospel, quotes Isaiah 9, but not when he's talking about Jesus' birth. He quotes these words in chapter 4, when Jesus is going around the places in verse 1, preaching repentance. Repentance. And that's because repentance is how we come under the rule of King Jesus. It's how we step into his light. So let me ask you, is there anywhere you are holding out against King Jesus' rule in your life? There are some obvious ways we do that, but there are hidden ways as well, ways we try to hide. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you need to bring into the light. Because here's the thing. So often, we choose darkness. John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Let me ask, is there anything you are doing in the darkness where you think no one else can see? Perhaps in those places where you feel anonymous and invisible, like on the internet? Is there anything that you need to bring out into the light of Jesus' rule? Hear what the king is saying this morning. Repent. Put yourself under his rule. Second thing, second way for us to respond. Put your burdens on his shoulders as you pray. God's light shine when, when his son rules, so put your burdens on his shoulders as you pray. There are so many Big picture burdens when we look at the world, aren't there? If you're here as a pathfinder or grafted and you ever look at the news, I wouldn't blame you for thinking, I'd rather not think about that, instead of having to face up to the world you might be growing up into. All sorts of things going on, wars spiraling, it seems out of control, ecological crisis, and we're doing so little to fix it. Now, don't get me wrong, what we can do, we must do, but the good news this morning is that the government is on his shoulders, not ours. So put your burdens on his shoulders. Can I ask, where are you holding on to burdens this morning? Are there fears about the future? Regrets about the past? Anxieties that are crushing you? Well, you can't carry them, and neither can I. But his shoulders are broad enough. His shoulders were broad enough to carry your sin and mine on the cross. And his shoulders are broad enough for real government to rule our world. Put your burdens on his shoulders. How do we do that? That's something we do in faith as we pray. Prayer is when we hand things over to God. And in fact, it's one of the best things about prayer, that we get to name those burdens that are too much for us and put them on his shoulders. Too overwhelming for us to carry, but nothing at all to this king sometimes my prayer life feels like i'm rattling off requests to the lord and there's a place for that but if that's all there is to prayer we're missing something in prayer god is inviting us to bring our burdens and leave them with him put your burdens onto his shoulders as you pray and you will find that that is worth doing because he can be trusted with our burdens have a look at the end of verse 7 The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You can leave your burdens with him because of his zeal. There is so much in the world that we can't fix. Even worse, there are so many things that we can fix, but somehow won't. But the good news is, the government that Jesus brings does not depend on crooked, compromised humanity. And it does not depend on weak, wayward people like us. God is committed to bringing it. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Something healthcare workers and caregivers talk about is compassion fatigue. Even as I say, you can probably imagine what that means, the way your capacity to care dwindles as you keep serving, keep pouring yourself out. I'm sure you've probably experienced that in small doses yourself. But the wonderful thing verse seven is telling us is that the Lord has no Compassion fatigue. His zeal is unceasing. And he is relentless in his pursuit of justice in the world. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And you and I have every reason to believe it. Because in the first coming of his son, he has shown the love that is literally stronger than death. So you can leave your burdens with him. God's light shines as his son rules so this morning put yourself under his rule as you repent put your burdens on his shoulders as you pray let me take a couple of quiet seconds before i lead us in a prayer and you might like to use this silence to come to him now perhaps to repent step into his light perhaps to take a burden off your shoulder and put it on his let's be still together King Jesus, we marvel at your beauty. You who are wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Come and reign, we pray. Reign in our hearts by your spirit. And come soon, we pray, back to this world which so desperately needs you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.